Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles. I hope you have them with you today to Job chapter 1 and hold that from the passage that Maggie just read. As we begin this morning, though, let's have a conversation just as a family. As one of the pastors, I want to address this. Some pretty big things are going to happen Tuesday in our country. And I know from conversations I've had with folks, and I totally understand that there's some big issues at stake here. But let's talk from a Christian worldview for a few moments about the election. And let's realize that, yes, there will be a diversity of opinions in this room. Some people will choose not to vote, and some people are adamant that we vote a certain way and want to have this conversation. I think it's funny. The room just got deathly quiet. (laughs) So if you're worried that I'm going to tell you how to vote, no, I'm not a political person by nature for this simple reason. God is not going to change this world by power. God is going to change this world by the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so no matter who gets elected on Tuesday, and you vote with your conscience, vote intelligently and vote purposefully. But please understand, it does not matter who wins this election Tuesday. God's sovereignty is not at risk. And so we need to pray for whoever is elected our president. We need to pray with, that God will awaken their heart to the gospel message of who Jesus Christ is and who he is. And if that happens, it'll be a great day in our nation. If it isn't, and all the doomsday prophecies that so many people are cultivating in this, this culture of fear, remember that we are not a timid people. We are not a people of fear. That we trust that God will overcome and God will rule. And I will pray for whoever becomes our president that God awakens them like he awakened Saul. And that that person becomes an advocate for the truth of God. I believe my God can do that no matter how we vote on a Tuesday. How about you? So let's pray about that today. Father God, we come before you and there's a tendency in our culture to be scared of what could happen. But I've heard this for general elections forever. And yet you're still God. And Jesus Christ still works. And Father, help us not to fear, but help us to live knowing that you can penetrate the hearts and minds of all of our Supreme Court uh, justices, that you can do that in the House and in the Senate, and you can do it in the White House. I pray that you do it in the state houses and the governor's homes, and that you will break through and reveal your goodness and your mercy and your holiness to each and every one of us. God, we want this country to represent you And so we pray that as you place people and allow people to be in positions of leadership, that you might awaken each one of us to who you are. That's our prayer today as a body. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the last week as Maggie just shared with us. Uh, in the shadow series. And if you're just joining us, the shadow series has been looking back in the Old Testament and casting a shadow forward to what God would do in the New Testament. There's a false presumption that all you need is the New Testament now this side of Jesus. And that the Old Testament is great stories, but it doesn't have much relevance. Please understand this. You cannot comprehend the theology of the New Testament without an understanding of the Old. This wasn't God started and had to start over because it didn't work. Go all the way back to Genesis and you'll see that there are shadows in the Old Testament casting themselves into the light of the New Testament, and that's what we're going to look at. Maggie just read one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, the story of Job. People use that who aren't even believers. They use the suffering of Job as a concept, 
And so what I'd like to identify is what we're going to talk about today is how do we handle innocent suffering? It's an issue for most every single one of us. In fact, I could assume it's an issue for all of us. What do we do with innocent suffering? Now, if a person commits a crime or commits fraud or lies or cheats or steals, and they suffer for doing that, there's not a person in the room who has a problem with that, do we? We say you break the rules, the rules break you. And that's the way the world ought to run. But what do we do with innocent suffering? What do we do when a good person who's tried to do a good thing their entire life suffers and did nothing wrong? Then we have a problem with it. And thus, the story of Job is the story of what happens when innocent suffering occurs and where is God in the midst of all of it? So what I'd like to do is I'd like to to break this into three pieces and we'll walk through each one of them. The first is this. What is our biblical understanding of suffering? How are we as Christians to look at this concept of suffering? Well, Dr. Timothy Keller, in a treatment that he had, in an article he wrote on suffering, says that the world has three basic solutions to suffering. Here's how we explain it. The first is we tell people to live with it, that God created evil. It's inevitable. There's no solution for it. You just have to get through it. The other solution is that we tell people to fear it. We say that God has nothing to do with evil. His hands are completely off of it. Evil is random, and sometimes it strikes, and there's no redeemable value. The third solution the world offers us is take the blame for it. It has to be your fault. God lets bad people suffer because they're bad people. That's probably the most common in the Jewish mindset in the Bible. The answer was that if you're suffering, you did something wrong. So we're told to live with it, fear it, or take the blame for it. But the story of Job and what's recorded in our Old Testament dismantles all three of those. What it does is it tells us that God is not the author of evil. Now, if you were following along while Maggie read that for us, who came up with the idea to attack Job with suffering? Satan did, not God. In verse 11, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, God did not make this world with death and destruction, did he? Now, some of you were in the Wednesday night class when we were going through Genesis 1 through 11 to discover that all theology is founded in those chapters. So I want to ask those of you that are here that were in that class, did God create death and destruction or was it not a reaction to our willfulness toward him? It was a reaction. That Satan was the one who came up with the concept of bringing evil. And Satan is doing this to get back at God for punishing him. When we decide to run our own lives and we mess up God's perfect world, evil was a result of it. And evil was brought into this world and evil's forces of darkness and destruction and death exist today. I want to show you in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 31 how God responds to this concept that he created evil. Why will you die? Turn to me and live, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Any questions? Is God into death? No. Death is a result of the evil and sin that we brought about. God is not the author of evil. The second thing I want to point out is that God is in complete control of evil. This is what the story of Job teaches us. In verse 11, it's Satan's idea to bring suffering onto Job. But in verse 12, if you look at your Bibles, God limits it. God says to Satan, you can can do anything to him but take his life. 
In fact, he says, you're not allowed to touch him. And then Satan comes back after he's lost everything. And Satan says, if I harm him, then he'll respond negatively to you. And then God says, you can't take his life. So God limits it. I want you to notice two things here. God overrules evil by putting a limit to it. That God will give us the, or the opportunity. God will allow the opportunity for us to suffer only to a certain extent. And then secondly, God will put a purpose to it. Let me explain what that means. Satan says to God in the first chapter, does Job fear God for nothing? It's an interesting question. If you serve God only for the comforts you receive from God, you're not serving God, you're using God. I want to say that again. If the only reason that you serve the Lord is because he's been good to you and you hope he's good to you in the future, you're not serving God, you're using God. The truth of the matter is, unless you serve God for nothing except for who he is, you're not a servant, you're a consumer. And so God says, when Satan challenges him, the only reason Job is serving you is because you're good to him. God said, I don't believe that's true. And so he allowed him to suffer to test him. Is Job a servant or not? And that's what the book of Job identifies. Can we serve God for who he is when everything isn't going our way? So God allows evil, puts a limit to it, and gives it a purpose. So there's nothing we go through in life that is not purposeful in the hands of God to identify our trust in him. And also, evil is not based on whether you're good or bad. The Jewish mind in the Old Testament, over and over, you'll see it displayed here, is that people will say things like, you must be suffering because you're an evil person. You did something wrong, God's getting even. You even hear it in our culture today. Someone's had a bad string of activities in their life. Suffering is upon them, and their conclusion is, what is God getting me for? Even in the church today, in contemporary times, we believe that people get sick and get hurt and lose their business because God's getting even. Let me tell you something biblically. If God got even for you, you'd be a puff of smoke. Are you with me, church? If he was going to give you what you deserved, you'd be gone. I'd be gone. So I wouldn't buy into that philosophy. In fact, I'll tell you that I believe Job suffered because he was good, and that's the reason he suffered. Satan went after Job because Job had such a relationship with God that Satan wanted to find out if it was legitimate or not. Suffering remains a mystery, but God's response to it does not. C.S. Lewis wrote a classic book called God in the Docks, which is an English expression or an Irish expression for uh, being put on trial. And the story of Job is the story of God being put on trial by Satan through a man named Job. Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish psychiatrist who was in the death camps during World War II, uh, wrote an amazing, and came, in fact, he came up with a psychiatric process, uh, psychotherapy for people that had been through suffering, because he said when he was taken captive and he was put in the concentration camps, the question he was asking was, what is the meaning of life? When he went through a period of suffering in the concentration camps, he came out and he said he had a new question. The question was, it was what is the meaning of life? The question is, what is the meaning of me? Why am I here? What have I experienced by losing everything? His family, his wife, his parents. He lost everything but a sister when he came out. 
And there's two pieces of advice given to Job, and I'm going to tell you right now, don't listen to him. When you read the book of Job, Job got pieces of advice, one from his wife. Here's what his wife's advice was. Hate God. Curse God and die. Get mad at God and end your madness. Not good advice. The second, he had three friends, and friends by the worst definition of the word friends. They said to him, you did it, admit it. And Job said, I didn't do anything. And they said, see, there you go. It's going to get worse. So not only did his wife tell him to hate God, his friends told him to hate himself. And if your two solutions for suffering in your life is to either hate God or hate yourself, I'm telling you, you're taking a non-biblical view. The biblical view of suffering then should be responded with, how am I to face it? It's the second thing today. How are we to face suffering? How do I deal with it? Well, I want to tell you that there's two Job's. I mean, there's not like two men, but there's two iterations of Job that take place in this story. In the very first one, all this tragedy hits him. Job comes out and he says, naked I came into this world, naked will I depart. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of these things, Job stops and he says, it's God's world and I'm a part of God's world and I'm just going to have to learn to, to deal with it. I'm going to deal with it with God. And that's a great side of Job. But I want to tell you, and this is what I love about this story, is Job toward the end of the book is more like you and me. And Job reacts, and I want to show you how he reacts to all of this. First of all, Job reacts with feelings. Now the Bible says this, that when he found out he lost his children, he lost all of his fortune, and the children was the most important thing. When he lost everything that mattered to him in his life, he tore his clothes, he shaved his head, which is biblical, he shaved his head, and he began to mourn. And he says he threw himself on the ground and he cried out to God. He hurt. He expressed feelings. I love this is in the Bible for this reason. So many of us have been taught that being a Christian is being stoic. No responses, no real emotions, no real tears. We only mourn for a moment and then we suck it up and move on. And I want to tell you that's not biblical. God is more comfortable with our emotions than we are. I've I, I learned something. It's not profound to you, but being for who I am and what I struggle with with my emotions is what I've had to release for myself is to say, you don't cry for nothing. Some of us tear up and we get emotional and we're embarrassed by it. It's like, oh, I didn't stop doing it. No, no. If, if it's real, it'll, it ought to make you cry. It was 1220 Wednesday night. And... And if you weren't paying attention, a, a team that I kind of like had a lead. And at 12.20 exactly, I backed the tape up and timed it, so this is not an exaggeration. At 12.20, my life came to a halt. In the bottom of the eighth inning, the center fielder for the Indians tied the World Series up against the team I like. And the score was 6-6 against one of the best pitchers the Cubs had. And I began to wonder this question, why do you hate me? And I'm telling you, as a 51-year-old man, I'm not playing this up. I thought, if they lose this game, I'm moving. I can't go to that church with all those Cardinal fans. I'm leaving town. I'm resigning. I can't do this. I don't want to see people. If anyone smarts up, I may punch them in the face. I had these emotions. And sitting right across the room from me is my 22-year-old son who is just silent like he always is. And then a 12-year-old's next to me and he's got tears in his eyes and he looks at me and he goes, Dad! And I was like, I know. 
And you may make fun of me for that. Those emotions hit me. I didn't want to feel that. I steeled myself all week going, they're not going to win the World Series because they're the Cubs. And then I started to believe they could, and I was mad at myself, and those emotions were legitimate. And I want to tell you, I'm not embarrassed I felt those. If you think that something that matters to you should be a stoic existence, you don't understand how God made you. And isn't it good news today that Job could have real, live emotions, and God didn't look down in heaven going, come on. You see, he had emotions. He had really real feelings. He cried out. He threw dust. And it had nothing to do with the stupid baseball game. It had something to do with real life tragedy. He thought his life had ended the way he knew it. And it was real. And God wasn't angry. But he didn't just live in feelings. He lived in truth. I've been describing this to to friends. And I won't take too much time with this. But I said, it makes me I get mad at myself for caring about a baseball team that doesn't know I exist. Have you ever tied yourselves emotionally to something? I keep thinking, here's this team. I've always equated it this way. I'm a seventh grade boy who has a crush on a 12th grade girl who's a cheerleader, and she doesn't even know I exist. And when she does well, I'm happy. But when she does well, she doesn't even know I'm there. But Wednesday night, that girl winked at me, and it was good. (laughs) It was really good. So I'm not going to get a ring, and I didn't get to go to the parade, but yeah, my feet haven't touched the ground yet. You see, Job not only dealt with the emotions of it, but I want you to notice at the end of his emotions, he said these words, I came into this world naked and I'm going to leave this world naked and it's God's world. He he didn't put God on trial. And everything that he had, he said, I lost everything I had, but it was never going to be mine forever anyway. There's a parable that I heard in light of Job that I thought was beautiful. There was a lumberjack who was about to drop a tree when he looked up and he saw a bird building a nest in the tree to lay her eggs. So he took the axe and he began to pound the tree and vibrate it so that the mother bird flew away with her materials. And he saw her go to another tree, but he knew that that tree was going to be cut down, so he went over and did the same thing. And he began to go from tree to tree, chasing this mother bird away till he saw her go up into the cleft of a rock and she began to build her nest there and he left her alone. And the parable is, was the lumberjack cruel because he made the bird too uncomfortable to stay where she wanted to be. No, because he knew the tree was going to fall and it would devastate her life. And suffering is used by God to move us from temporary things to a permanent place of trusting him. Does that make sense? That's what Job is teaching us. That God moved us through suffering to a place of stability rather than have us think that our life is this tree we're building our little nest in. A nest that's not going to last. A nest that's going to come burning down one day. You notice that Job has the best theology for all of our lives. We came naked into this world and we will leave this world naked. And none of our clothes and our possessions and our titles and our trophies and our money, none of it's going to go with us. So why are we building these nests so fervently when they're so temporary? There's a balance of feeling through suffering and there's a balance of truth. And Job displays it. So that's what my challenge is. When you suffer, feel deeply. You can't feel free to express your feelings. You can't read the Psalms without reading people who have real emotional reactions. And then balance it with truth. Who is God? And what is the end of my story inevitably? 
And when we find that, now we know how to overcome suffering. Look at verse 22, and I love this. This is a good piece of news to us. In all of this, Job did not charge God with sin. Through the midst of his feelings, he didn't cross the line. In the midst of his truth, he did not cross the line. God was comfortable with Job experiencing suffering and getting every little bit of it he could. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, and please, I hope you'll open them now if you haven't yet. Job chapter 38. Because, remember I told you there's two Jobs in the story? There's the first chapter, Job, where he's like, cool, I'm cool, this is good, I can do this. And then there's the end of it where he finally has enough. Between his wife and his friends, he finally loses it, and he does something amazing. He calls God in for questions. He calls God and charges him with wrongdoing. He says, God, you will come here and you will answer my questions. I've been a good boy. I've done what you've asked me to do. You owe me an answer. Job 38, verse 3. God says to him, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Job thinks he's going to get a bunch of answers from God and God goes, "Sit, sit down. And I love that. Brace yourself like a man. When God tells you to brace yourself like a man, you realize your subservient position. He doesn't say, be my equal. He says, I created you. Sit down. Shut up. Listen. I won't answer your question. You'll answer me. Verse 4. Oh, I want you to notice as we go into this, Job never gets a question answered. Job doesn't get to ask a question. God doesn't tell him about the dialogue that went on with Satan. God doesn't tell us that he's limiting suffering. He just gives him question after question after question, and God crushes his self-righteousness. These questions expose to Job this simple answer. Who are you to question God over anything? So here we go, verse (laughs) 4. Just, I know, I'm happy, but go with me on this. (laughs) Sit in a chair before Almighty God and answer these questions yourself. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Verse 16. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanse of this earth? Tell me if you know all of this. What is the way of the abode of light and where does darkness reside? Can you take me to their places? Do you know the path to their dwelling? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. God's sarcastic. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) I've been told it's a sin. I love it. God's like, really, ancient of days, tell me. Verse 24. What is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Verse 34. Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with the flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts in their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. And what you'll understand is when God crushes our self-righteousness, humility is the response. Being subservient to him is a response. Turn to Job 42. Now, I just had you leave verse, or chapter 38. It's not till chapter 42 that God gets it done. If you want to have some fun this week, read the questions. Too many to cover in a morning. Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job replied to the Lord. I'm betting he whispered, don't you? I know that you can do all things. No, no plan of yours can be thwarted. 
You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. That's a pretty strong answer at the end. Job said, I'm, I'm, I'm stupid. I, I can't question you. After all you've done for me, I despise myself. His self-righteousness was crushed. He didn't say he was worthless. He said when he tried to stand up as if God owed him, when he put God on trial, he said, what an idiot. I actually asked the God of the universe who's done all of this to answer to me, who am I to have done that? I heard you and now I know you. And my self-righteousness is gone. But what I want you to notice in all of this, and please notice this with me as I conclude. Job accused God of doing wrong. And by doing so, Job did wrong. But God never accuses Job of doing wrong. God never puts Job on trial. All he does is ask him questions that shows Job, I have no idea how this all works. So instead of God putting Job on trial because Job put God on trial, God does something completely different. And this is where the shadow extends into the gospel. God put himself on trial. Instead of putting Job on trial, he put himself on trial. I want you to notice that Job cries out, why me? His wife says, why you? His friends say, what did you do? And in the, in the Old Testament, you can go through. In Jeremiah, in the book of Job, in, in David's writings, in the Psalms, he cries out. Everyone's crying out in the Old Testament. Why me? Why is this happening to me? Why are my enemies after me? Why am I struggling? I'm trying to serve you. Why me? Why me? Why me? You get in the New Testament. James is killed because of Jesus. And the disciples never cry out, why me? Paul is persecuted numerous times. He never once cries out, why me? John is sent to the Isle of Patmos, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. He's sent to an island as a political prisoner. He never cries out, why me? Peter is persecuted. He never cries out, why me? There's only one person in the entire New Testament who cries out, why me? His name was Jesus. And on the cross, he cried out, cried out to his father, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And we know the answer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is because of you and me. God put himself on trial. The innocent one who could have stood up to any court of law and say there's no evidence for me to ever be persecuted of a single thing done wrong. But he didn't. I'm reading through the Gospels right now. And I'm at the end of Jesus. I'm in the final week of Jesus' life in my read through the Bible. And I'm reading every day for the last four days in my Bible reading. I read a moment where Jesus, if he would have told the truth, and I'm not saying he lied, but he kept his mouth shut. He bit his tongue. If he would have told the truth, he would have been freed as an innocent man and we would have all died under trial as guilty. But Jesus bit his tongue. He never said a word. He took our trial on himself. He took our guilt on himself. He took the venom and the punishment for everything we did in defiance of God. Jesus wore that on himself. God did not put Job on trial. He put himself on trial. His name was Jesus. And he went to the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was singing a song. 
If you read the 22nd Psalm, you'll understand it was a song about how God was going to save the world by putting himself on trial. So when you cry out, why me? You only need to hear the echoes of Jesus crying out, why me? And understand that the suffering we go through is God simply allowing us to be moved from tree to tree to tree until we find our home on the rock. A safe place, a lasting place, a perfect place. You see, as we conclude this shadow series, I've wanted you to see from the very, very beginning, the reason Michael and I put this together is we want this church to understand the Old Testament is the vibrancy of the New Testament. It's the story of a group of people journeying toward this Jesus who would put himself on trial and accept a guilty verdict so that you and I could be found innocent. He did all of this. And that's why, if you could see, my tail's wagging right now about where we're going next week. As we begin this series through the Gospels, I want you to understand. I want you to come next week. I want you to bring a Bible. I want you to get a journal. I want you to be able to take notes. I want you to have notes through the Gospels so that all of us can know this is a Jesus church. That's why we're called Christ's church. It doesn't matter where Christ's church is located. Oronogo doesn't matter. This is Christ's church. And so bring your Bible. Get a journal. Get your own journal. Put it on your phone. Whatever you do, but track with us because the gospel matters. We've been talking about it forever. From Genesis all the way to today, the gospel is the power that will save us. It is the thing that will redeem us. It is the authority of our life. And not only bring yourself and your Bible and a journal, bring a friend. Look around this room. There are seats that could be open to somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is. Will you make that difference? Because God has been shadowing the story of redemption and Jesus blew the light on it. So no longer are we in the shadows, are we? We're living in the light. We're living in the present day. We're living in the kingdom and one day the skies will unveil Jesus Christ and he will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and I'm excited about that. How about you? That's an election I'm voting yes on. When the real king comes back. And so the challenge for us is the gospel message is true. God has been delivering Jesus to us and the promise of Christ from the very, very beginning. God put himself on trial so you and I could be found innocent. And if you know today that you're guilty, you need to to know Jesus because he took your guilt and your shame, regardless of what you've done. He is our hope. He is our future. And he's the reason we trust that God put himself on trial so we could be found innocent. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.